0: Well, if you have a Bible, you can turn it to that passage in Joshua, uh, Joshua chapter 24 there in the Old Testament. Uh, let me give you just kind of an update on, on where we're at. So we're kicking off a brand new series today uh, entitled The Heart of a Disciple. And this is really a continuation of the first series. The first series was entitled Digging Deeper, and what we did in that series is laid out Kind of a game plan for the rest of the year. And as a church, instead of going wide this year in our topics and, uh, and just kind of, you know, scattered in what we're talking about, kind of have a very narrow, focused objective. And it came out of the first series. The first series is really a setup for the rest of the year. And in that series, I laid out five different steps uh, that we can take in order to be disciples of Christ. And we defined a disciple as this, a follower of Jesus and his teaching. And every disciple is on a process of changing or being transformed or being trained in Christ. And that process is discipleship, a process of continuous transformation where we become more like Christ. And this happens through the gospel. Now, when we kicked off the last series, my um, opening Talk this year was, was about choosing your teacher and picking, am I going to follow Christ or am I going to follow the world? Or am I going to follow myself? And, and so today what we're going to do is we're going to go back to week one and the sermon that I preached there. And then uh, we're going to spend five weeks expounding upon that opening sermon. That's how we're kind of digging deeper this year. And, and the aim here is that we would all know throughout this year what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Now, that original series or sermon came out of Jeremiah 17, 5 through 10. So a quick recap. Uh, The prophet Jeremiah lays out that there's two ways to live life. One way to live life is to make Jesus or, or God your teacher, your path. And he gives a metaphor. He says, if you do that, you'll be like a tree, a happy tree that's planted by water with all of the sustenance and life that you'll need. He said, or there's another path, and you can choose to follow this one, you'll be like a shrub, a cursed shrub in the desert. And so Jeremiah, in his metaphors, is trying to paint a very easy picture. Do you want to be the happy tree or do you want to be the cursed shrub? The happy tree that has chosen Jesus as his teacher or the cursed shrub that is just doing life his or her own way? Now, after Jeremiah lays this out, he brings up what is the the tension point and it's Jeremiah 17:9 and it says this the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick like more than anything else that the heart is it's deceitful and desperately not just sick desperately sick so the question then becomes how does the deceitful heart the desperately sick heart how does it become turned alive to the gospel How does a desperately sick, deceitful heart choose to follow Jesus and decide to make him his or her teacher? Hopefully the her I wasn't referring to there was Jesus. I'm trying to mess up my pronouns here. How does the heart do that? Well, this morning, I want to talk about the heart of a disciple, and I want to do it under three postures of the heart, three postures that have to exist in, in in the disciple's heart. And the let me give them to you. I'll give you the answer at the beginning. First, the acknowledging God's sovereign grace. Secondly, to turn from foreign gods. I'll point this all out in the text. And third, to incline your heart. Or inclined the heart. So three postures uh, of the heart of a disciple is they've acknowledged the sovereignty of God's grace, they've turned from foreign gods, and they've inclined their heart to God. Now I'm going to use some words that might be a little easier to remember than these phrases, so let me give you three postures of the heart in modern language. Grace, repentance, and affections. Grace, repentance, And affections. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to um, kind of teach through each of these headers, and then we're actually going to go back to these three later on in the series, because we're digging deeper, and we don't want to just, you know, move through things quickly, because we really want them to sink down. So grace, repentance, and affections, or the sovereignty of God's grace, turning from foreign gods and inclining your heart to Him. Now, In order to do this this morning, what I'm going to do is uh, we're going to arrive at Joshua 24, but we're going to go back a little bit before because I want to show you point one, which is the acknowledgement of God's sovereign grace. And I want to show you through this uh, in the book of Genesis so that you might see it there, but also so that you might see it in your own life and so that you might be able to look in and to acknowledge the sovereignty of God's grace over your own life. And so our story this morning will start a few hundred years before the story in Joshua. We'll go back to Genesis chapter 12. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, it's broken up into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament tells the story of God's chosen people, the Israelites, and they're God's chosen people because because they're God's chosen people. That's the answer. And it starts with a guy by the name of Abram, who later gets his name changed to Abraham, so I'm just going to refer to him as Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, we see the call of Abraham. And before this moment, we don't know who Abraham is. There's nothing special, unique, great about Abraham. God calls Abraham. And Abraham responds to the call. And in verse 6, we see this. I'm in Genesis chapter 12. Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So Abram in his journey arrives at this place called Shechem. And and there at this uh, place called Shechem, he's at a tree. In in your notes uh, where it says oak, it'll probably say terebinth in your tree or terebinth in your tree or in your notes. And so here's Abram. He's at this tree, this terebinth tree at Shechem, and God appears to him, and uh, God makes a ridiculous promise. If I can use the word ridiculous in something assigned to God. God makes a ridiculous promise, and it's this, that you, man, who has no children and who has no right at all to possess this land, you one day, your offspring are going to possess this land. Your offspring are going to possess this land. I mean, it would have seemed outrageous. Like, there's no way. Abraham believed God, though. We'll, we see that later. And, and so this promise is just kind of stored in the back of Abraham's mind uh, at the tree at Shechem. And so uh, Abraham receives this promise, and, and his life continues to journey on. And then he finally does, in his very old age, have a son who has a son, and that son's name is Jacob. And give me a little grace on the timeline. But about a 100 years later, Jacob is journeying back after kind of a long story. And as Jacob is journeying back from his homeland, back to where Abraham had finally settled, we pick this story up in Genesis chapter 35. And I know I just skipped a lot of um, the Bible. Well, not a lot of the Bible, a lot of Genesis. Um, But just, you know, things happened. Now we're in Genesis chapter 35, verse 4. This is Jacob, who is Abraham's grandson. Jacob's traveling back with his two wives and his two maidservants. Yep, you heard me right. Don't recommend it, okay? And so the whole gang is coming back. And when they get to a place, so they gave to Jacob, they being the wives, all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, That was near Shechem. So a hundred years or so have passed and they're journeying back and they arrive at this place called Shechem, and where when they get to Shechem, they get to this tree, this terebinth tree, the the the, the place where Abram was when God had said, You're going to get an inheritance that seems ridiculous and is far beyond anything that you deserve. And now, a hundred years or so later, Jacob and his family are journeying in, and Jacob knows that if I'm gonna go into this next like part of life, that something has to happen here first. And what has to happen is the foreign gods have to be buried under the tree the place of the inheritance. They had to be buried under the tree. And so what happens is he gathers them all up and they bury them under the tree. Now remember, these foreign gods were what? Jacob's wives and really the world that Jacob had been living in for the last, well, at least 14 years had been wrapped up in these gods. And so they're leaving these behind. And as soon as he leaves this behind, this past behind him, as soon as he leaves that behind, the very next thing that happens is Jacob's name is changed over to Israel and he is granted a new identity. He's granted a new identity, and his name is changed to Israel. And the whole reason that there's a nation called Israel right now, and we refer to them for the rest of time as the Israelites, is because of what happened right here, because he buried the gods underneath the tree, and so he could be granted a new identity right here. Now go a little bit longer in the story. Over to Genesis chapter 37. Jacob has 12 sons. Out of Jacob's 12 sons, one of them is his favorite son. It's a guy by the name of Joseph. And Jacob's first 10 sons are all out shepherding. Genesis chapter 37, verse 12. Let's look and see where they're shepherding. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And so now we're probably 150, 200 years or so or whatever from uh, the moment that Abram got the initial promise of the inheritance. We're, we've got some time that has passed from when the names were changed or he was given the new identity and they buried the gods. And now they're back at Shechem and they're shepherding. And Joseph, the favored son of the father, is sent to the brothers. And he's sent to the brothers and, and the brothers receive him well and they have a party. No. No, what happens instead is they beat him up and they sell him into slavery. And what would seem like the lowest possible moment for Joseph was actually God in his sovereignty, preparing his people to be redeemed and saved later. And so God was working in the lowest moment in Joseph's life. There at Shechem, when his brothers abandoned him. And so Joseph, his life actually gets, I guess you could argue, worse. He, he gets sold into slavery and then he's very righteous throughout the story. Uh, Joseph is seen as a very righteous figure and to, to no fault of Joseph's own, he ends up being, uh, he ends up in prison and when he's in prison, he's righteous again. Uh, and God is blessing him along the way, but his life from like a material perspective like keeps getting worse and then Joseph is then even been abandoned and forgotten in prison, and he's there, but then something happens, and, uh, and Joseph emerges out of prison, and he ascends to the right hand of Pharaoh, second in command. I mean, he, he, outside of Pharaoh, he's over everything, and so now Joseph has risen to this place of power, out of the depths. I mean, a very unlikely story, Very unlikely story. But now he's in the place uh, of power and the whole world faces uh, a crisis that they could never solve on their own. And and Joseph's family uh, back at Shechem in, in in the land that they were at uh, are, are near death because of the famine and the, there's no food. And, uh, and so what they have to do is they have to travel. And as they travel, they finally find themselves in front of the person who gets to divvy out all of the food and all of the blessing. And it's their long lost brother who they had abandoned and beaten. And he holds the key to their future. He holds the key to their ability to to live. And Joseph, not because his brothers deserved it. And as you read the story, not because there's anything good in them. Forgives his brothers. Blesses them bountifully with food. He tricks them a little bit, I know, but I'm cutting to the end of the story. Blesses them bountifully. Gives them what they need for provision. And eventually what happens is the entire family actually moves from Shechem and they move to Egypt. And as they move to Egypt, they, um, they flourish. Uh, bountiful. And there's lots of them. So much so that the Egyptians eventually put them in slavery and they use them to advance their own empire. Until a guy by the name of Moses... Probably heard of him. A guy by the name of Moses shows up on the scene, and he helps them eventually escape. Escape's kind of a weird word, but he, he, they, they leave. And then they're going to go take back the land that God had promised to them. And a lot of time passes by. A lot of time. Like in the slavery, 400 years of time. So we're not talking weeks or months or years or decades. Centuries. Centuries. And then, as they're uh, coming back into the land to take over the land of, of which they were promised, right, back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 6, at the tree uh, in Shechem, uh, as, as they're journeying back to that point, uh, Moses dies, and a new leader takes over, and his name is Joshua. And, and, and then Joshua leads the people, and they go in, and they, they chase out the bad guys. And, and then we get to Joshua chapter 24, our text. So that was all of my setup to hear. But it was my setup under point number one, which is just acknowledging the sovereignty of God's grace, that over the course of hundreds of years, that as God was clearly moving, and by the way, it's not just me that points this out, they actually pointed out in the text it says, for it was the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up in the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight, and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the peoples whom we passed. And it was the Lord who did this, and it was the Lord who did that. And they're just going, it was God who has brought us to this point. From Abram, one dude, at a tree, in Shechem, through Jacob and the new identity, through Joseph and his abandonment, through all of the slavery, now we're here. Oh, and by By the way, where is here? Verse 25. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and he set it up there under the what? The terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And so here we have hundreds of years. And one tree (laughs) that just keeps coming up. And every time there's a, there's a story about what God is doing, it, it, it's at Shechem, and there's a tree. An inheritance, a new identity, a favorite son set out ahead. Oh, and here's how this section of Scripture ends. So Joshua sent the people away. This is the very end. Every man to his, what? Inheritance just as God had promised all the way back here in Genesis chapter 12, just as he had promised. Point number one, the disciple acknowledges the sovereignty of God's grace to even get them to this point. The heart of a disciple is to sit here this morning and go, I don't even know why I'm here in church. Think of all the places you could have been born that never hear the gospel. Why you? Why you? Why me with a a deceitful and desperately sick heart? Am I here in this moment? The heart of a disciple acknowledges the sovereignty of God's grace. Then, this is how Joshua starts his, kind of his closing speech to the people. He says, now therefore fear the Lord. We've moved into point two, by the way. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so now that the the uh, the Israelite people have gone through this massive journey where God's sovereignty was all about it, and he's got them back to the place of Shechem, where God told them that they would dwell and they would have an inheritance waiting for them, Joshua looks out and he says, okay, God's sovereignty brought you here, but now choose, choose who you will serve. Because the heart of a disciple, number two, is, is, is turning from foreign gods or putting away foreign gods or, or, or choosing to follow God or whatever phrase you want to use or, or we'll use the New Testament term, repentance. Like after God has brought us to a place that we could never get to on our own, then there's this, this, this option laid out of put away the foreign gods and repent. Why? Oh, because when you do, there's a new identity that is waiting for you. There's a new identity that's waiting for you when you do. So put them away. Now, Joshua gives this speech, and I mean, it's a a good speech, right? He he lays this out, I mean, it's a good verse, and, and this is how the Israelites respond. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord, to serve other gods. This line, if we properly understand it, is funnier than any Super Bowl commercial will be this year. For be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. They have 500 years of history of doing exactly this. I mean, this is exactly what they've done. They have forsaken the Lord their God and served foreign gods. And so Joshua lays out this challenge. Choose this day whom you will serve. And he gives them options. You can go back to some traditions of your father. You can serve the culture of the environment that you're in. Or you can choose to follow God. Or as we're saying it around here, choose your teacher. Choose your teacher. And I would say, by the way, we've got the same choice. You have the same choice. You can, you can serve some like ideal of the past. Right? And when I say ideal of the past, like like maybe you have this idea of just like well well you know like I grew up in a good family or 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 like I want to be a good moral person or like the world just needs to just to to return to the good old days, right? Uh, and it's not centered around Christ. There's just this idea of like let's just let's just kind of go back to when things were better or simpler, right? So you can do that, or 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 you can serve culture and you can bow to culture and let it tell you what is right and what is true and what is wrong and and what is right, all that stuff. Or he says, you can serve God. And then Joshua kind of looks and says, and I don't care what y'all choose, but for me and my house, we're serving God. That's just what we're going to do. And so Joshua lays out to the challenge to the Israelite people. and, And then after they give him their little response, Joshua looks to the people, and he says this in verse 19. Liars. Not the word he uses, but it's what he's saying. He says, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. Well, isn't that pretty? Yeah, Joshua, we're in, man. We're going to serve God. And Joshua looks back and goes, no, you're not. No, you're not. He's like, I've been watching you guys for a long time. You're not going to serve God. You're going to run back to your foreign gods. And guess what? Joshua is right. Because you know what they do? They run back to their foreign gods. In fact, the entire next book of the Bible is about Israel doing the exact opposite of what they say they're going to do right here. The exact opposite. So Joshua tells them that. He says, yeah, I don't don't really believe you guys. And see, I think what's going on here is Joshua was saying, I-, I think you guys, you have an idea of what it means to serve the Lord. Like you have this like concept uh, of what it is. Or maybe you think just because you're in proximity uh, uh, to Abram and Abraham's family and you're like part of the line that that makes you okay. In fact, this would not just be an ancient thing. Uh, a few thousand years later, Jesus would be looking at a group of religious leaders and they would say, hey, we're part of Abraham's family, so we're good. And Jesus would say, No, no, you're actually part of Satan's family. Big difference. Big difference. He says, You haven't changed. Your heart hasn't changed. You're not any different. Nothing's transformed inside. You don't have the heart of a disciple. This is what Jesus was saying. This is what Joshua is saying here. So this is how the people respond. He said, no, 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 no. Verse 21. People said to Joshua, no, 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 Joshua. We will serve the Lord. We're going to do it this time. They did it. We're going to do it this time. Joshua goes, okay, fine. Let me tell you. Let me tell you what that looks like. And what Joshua is about to describe is the heart of a disciple. What Joshua is about to describe is no different than the call that Jesus gives to people when they're deciding who their teacher is going to be. Joshua lays that out in ancient words. I'll give you the modern ones here in a second. I already gave them to you. But Joshua lays it out. He says, okay, great. You want to be a disciple? Then this is the heart of a disciple. I believe it's verse 23. He says this, okay? Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. You really want to to serve the Lord and follow him. You you really want to be, in New Testament terms, you really want to be a disciple of Christ. He said, okay, then these are the only two things you got to do. It was God's sovereign grace that even brought you up into this point. But now that you're here, put away the foreign gods and incline your heart. Or as we're saying it, repent and set your affections on him. Repent and set your affections on him. That's what a disciple does. That's what it means to choose your teacher. First, put away the foreign gods. Put away is another phrase that means turn aside. Turn aside is a phrase that would become repent. That's the etymology of it throughout the scriptures. Put away your foreign gods, exactly what Jacob did right here at the terebinth tree in order to gain his new identity. Now, because I would think that most of us don't have little foreign gods in our house, little statues, let me tell you what a god is. A god is the desire of your heart that produces the most joy, the most peace, and the most hope for a better future. A God is the desire of your heart that produces the most joy, the most peace, and the most hope for a better future. That's a God. And the heart of a disciple puts away all gods or all desires that would rival Christ. Christ. Maybe ask asked another way. What would be the hardest thing for you to bury underneath the tree? And Jacob looked at his wives and what they had built their family on for the last however many years and they said, we're just going to leave it here because we have a new identity to pursue. What would be the hardest thing to bury at the tree. Because the inheritance and the new identity are on the other side of burying at first. And the heart of a disciple has acknowledged God's sovereign grace up to this moment and then leaves the God buried at the tree. Now to help us, let me just ask you three questions out loud. Where do you derive the most joy? What does bring you the most peace? What is your greatest hope for a better future? This will begin to help you discern what might be a foreign God that has taken root in your heart. If the idea of burying it buries you, it may be the foreign God. The idea of leaving it at the tree makes you think, I don't even want to go to the other side. It's probably a foreign God. And the heart of a disciple buries that after they've acknowledged God's grace. Now, they don't just do that, though. The, the third thing, and the third part of this, in the third posture of the disciple, after they've acknowledged God's grace and after they've repented, the third thing is their affections, then. Uh, they incline their hearts to God. They're, like, actively inclining their hearts. They're, they're, they're setting their affections on Jesus. They're setting their affections on the Lord, and, and, and their heart and their, and their love just grows, and they have just this love for Christ, and their affections are just set squarely, solely, on Christ. Now, perhaps you would ask, but why would I do that? Why would I set my affections on Christ? Why would I, why would I bury the foreign God? Why, why would I even, why would I do that? Let's look back at verse 20 for a second. Actually, 19 and 20. He says, you are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. Now this is clearly not good news. You read this and you clearly don't go like, yes. And you can't read this and go, okay, then I will never turn my heart to anything else and I will just settle in on choosing God and I'll live perfectly and then he won't consume me and he won't turn his back on me and I won't rival up his jealousy because my heart is elsewhere. And you can will, and you can work, and you can try and do that, and you will be exactly like the Israelite people, and you will fail. It says the scripture then will consume you. Now, is Joshua lying here? Is he lying about all of this? No, he's not. What he's doing is he's pointing to something in the future. He's pointing to something in the future. Because in this text, that, that clearly reads is not good news, is, is actually pointing into the future, into something that is really good news, the gospel. And, and, and what Joshua is pointing to is something that would happen years down the road that would be the fulfillment of what started back in Genesis chapter 12, and it would all happen around a tree. It would all happen around a tree. Not, not the terebinth tree at Shechem, but, but, but the tree of the cross at Calvary. And there on the, on the tree where, 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 where the story has always been pointing, always been pointing to a tree. There on that tree, what would happen is the complete reversal of what had happened throughout this story. Because there on this tree, God would send forth his favored son. God would send forth his favorite son and his favorite son would come down into the presence of his brothers. And you know what they would do? They would abandon him. They would beat him and they would leave him for death. And he would descend, not just into the pits of prison, but into the depths of depravity. And like Joseph rose up and ascended to the right hand of Pharaoh, Jesus would ascend to the right hand of God. And whereas Joseph, not because his brothers were good or righteous, he would offer them a forgiveness that they did not deserve and open them up to the bounties of blessing and provision, Jesus would do the exact thing for us. He would give us a forgiveness that we did not deserve and he would open us up to blessings beyond anything we could ever gather ourselves. All at the tree. And then what would also happen at the tree is that through the sovereign moving of God's grace, there would be moments like this. And I don't know why you're here. And I don't know how God has worked through your history or your family history. Maybe it's as long as the story of Abram and everywhere else. But for some reason, you are here right da- right now, today, and uh, by the sovereignty of God's grace. So I can look at you and I can say, choose. Choose this day whom you will serve. Choose who you will serve. Put away the foreign God. Repent. Repent. And put away the... Bury it under the tree of the cross. Leave it there. Why? Because on the other side of you repenting and burying... That foreign God, that that desire in your heart that rivals Jesus, on the other side of that, you know what awaits you? A new identity. That's what awaits you on the other side. A new identity that you will be granted. And then you know what awaits you after the new identity? A blessing and an inheritance. A ridiculous inheritance that God will grant to you and bring you into his family all because of what happened at the tree now at the end of this little story Joshua sets up a stone he sets up the stone at the terebinth tree and he says what we're going to do is we're going to create a little memorial so that we will never forget what happened at the tree. We're going to set up a memorial so that we can remember that inheritance was promised and identity was given and a favored son was set ahead to secure redemption. So we're going to set up a memorial at the tree. Now Jesus would do the same thing. Near the end of his time, what he would do is he would usher in Communion and the whole point of communion would be that we would never forget what happened at the tree that we would acknowledge the sovereignty of god's grace moving to the point of christ's death on the on the cross and that we would remember then that if we bury if we bury those foreign gods that we'll be given a new identity and we'll be ushered into an inheritance so today we're gonna we're gonna take communion. You can go ahead and pull your cup out. Some of you already have. I've got three up here. Anyone need one? That's when you know your hospitality team is on point. So today we take communion as a reminder to how God has worked and what he's always done around the tree. First, his sovereignty, by the way, if you haven't, go ahead and open everything up. I can do this. No, I can't. It's a faulty cup. Over for two. The rest of you will partake in communion today. Oh. No, I got my bread, it's my juice I can't get open. It's my feeble little fingers. Thank you, Tom. Real leadership serves people. <laughs> um, the whole point of the stone in the story and the point of communion is to stop for a minute and remember, remember what got us to this point. And so today we walk through the heart of a disciple. And I ask you, will you take a second here? And will you let the sovereignty of God's grace, like like the question of why you? Why you? sovereignty of God's grace that has brought you to this moment right here, right now. So God, why me? I don't know. Why any of us? All we can say is thank you. And Father, before we partake, Right now, we lay down, or maybe first reveal any foreign God that is rivaling you right now in our hearts. May we bury it at the cross. And Father, thank you for a new identity. A new identity that it actually makes burying, burying the old foreign God not seem like nearly such a big deal because we know that the new identity is greater. And Lord, may our affections turn to you as we dwell on the beauty of the inheritance you have given us the down payment of which is the presence of your Holy Spirit in our lives. So on your own, you can partake in communion. The bread is the representation of his body broken and the juice is the representation of his bloodshed for the forgiveness of our sins, the reminder that God did not consume us because of our sin, but instead he consumed himself on the cross. Go ahead and partake as you desire. You guys stand with me? I'm going to pray out of here. If you need someone to pray with you, you can come up afterwards after service. Uh, our elders would love to do that. If you want to worship God with your giving, you can put cash or check uh, in the box or give online. Remember, if you're new, we'd love a chance to connect with you out in the lobby. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we told a story that was about four or five hundred years or so, it reminds us of a story that is six or seven thousand or eight thousand, however many years old, where you made a promise that something would happen at a tree, an inheritance would be granted, an identity would be given, because your favorite son laid down his life for us. And so, Father, I thank you for the sovereignty of your grace as it moves in our lives and leads us to these moments when we can choose to serve the Lord. And so I pray that right now that each individual in here, you have moved in their heart this morning, would lay down and bury that foreign God so that they can walk into the new identity that you are granting, an identity that lasts longer and an identity that is greater Than anything we could try to create on our own. And thank you that we get to walk into this beautiful inheritance of being your children. That we get a down payment on that inheritance called the Holy Spirit, where we get to walk in your presence. And so this week I pray that as we acknowledge your grace, as we repent, and as we set our affections, and as your Holy Spirit is upon us, that out in front of me right now would be people who would advance the name of Jesus, who would show love who would bring peace into every situation, who would um, unite instead of divide, who would be used by you to expand your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here today, guys. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.